Please take your Bibles now and turn with me to the book of Psalms. We are in Psalm 119, and today we are considering verses 73 through 80. As we approach God's word, let's do so prayerfully and knowing that by the spirit, he can change us through his word. Let us read. Your hands have made me and formed me. Give me understanding to learn your commands. May those who fear you rejoice when they see me, for I have put my hope in your word. I know, O Lord, that your laws are righteous, and in faithfulness you have afflicted me. May your unfailing love be my comfort according to your promise to your servant. Let your compassion come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. May the arrogant be put to shame for wronging me without cause, but I will meditate on your precepts. May those who fear you turn to me, those who understand your statutes. May my heart be blameless toward your decrees that I may not be put to shame. Let us pray. Our God and Father above, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. In the account of the kings of Judah and Israel that we find in First and Second Kings, kind of in the middle of those accounts, beginning in First Kings 17 and going on through Second Kings 8, we see the establishment of the prophetic office in Israel. There had been prophets before. We, we know of Nathan who ministered in David's court, and uh, Moses acted as a prophet, but as a particular office in the life of Israel, it was we see the establishment of that office of prophet in those chapters that, that, that saddle um, first and second kings. And the first prophet that we are introduced to is the prophet Elijah. Elijah was used mightily by God. God told him to go to Ahab who had married Jezebel and Jezebel had brought idolatry and apostasy into the northern kingdom, the nation of Israel. Elijah called Ahab and the nation to repentance. And he did so by God working miracles through him. God told him to go proclaim and pray and rain stopped for three and a half years. And he told Elijah to go again and proclaim and pray. And the rain started back up. God sent Elijah to Mount Carmel where he met with close to 400 of the priests of Baal. And they had a contest to see whose God was more powerful. Both the prophets of Baal and Elijah built altars. They slaughtered the animals that were going to be sacrificed. They put them on top of the altars. Elijah soaked his down with water. And the idea was that they would each pray to their God and whichever God sent fire was the God of Israel. The prophets of Baal prayed for four hours. They yelled, they screamed, they sang, they danced. They even cut themselves trying to get Baal's attention all to no avail. And then Elijah went with a very quiet and simple prayer, said, O oh Lord, honor yourself and your servant by sending fire, and fire rained from heaven, consuming the sacrifice and melting the stones. At that point, the people of Israel rose up. They slaughtered the prophets of Baal, and Jezebel took it personally. And she began to systematically hunt down the prophets of Israel 
And Elijah runs for his life. He runs as far as Mount Sinai, which is where we hear this account of a conversation between God and Elijah in 1 Kings 19, beginning in verse 10. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah. What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your offers, altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left. And now they are trying to kill me too. We can relate to that, can't we? Oftentimes in the midst of affliction, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of grief, in the midst of whatever difficulties, whatever that shadow of death looks like in your life, we just figure out that we are loners in our sufferings and struggles in this world. The psalmist of Psalm 119 is tempted to the same lonely despair in his affliction. And this portion of his prayer that we read earlier today is a call to God to bring the comfort of his steadfast love and merciful kindness to bear on the life of the, of the psalmist. And we see God's answer to that prayer for comfort in the fellowship of the saints, in the fellowship of fellow believers. And so our passage today teaches us that God brings loving and merciful comfort through the fellowship of believers. Now we keep in mind that the entirety of Psalm 119 is a prayer to God. It's a prayer for growth. It's a prayer uh, for growth and obedience, for growth and trust in God. And it's a prayer that the psalmist prays we have seen and will continue to see. He prays it both in good times in his life and in times of suffering and affliction. And we are in, a, in the midst of a few sections here that are dealing with affliction. We've been considering each of these sections as individual prayers, but they are one, they are petitions within one complete prayer. It reminds us that, that, that our prayers should be scripture soaked as the psalmist appeals to God's promises. He appeals to God's law, both as the source of comfort and also as what he hopes to internalize and live by. Notice that he while he prays for relief from affliction, he oftentimes prays more fervently for growth in grace and growth in faith. Your prayers, my prayers oftentimes stop short of spirit-soaked prayers because we focus on our material needs to the exclusion of our spiritual needs. In our, in our prayer meeting on Wednesday night, we considered one of the prayers of Paul, the prayer for the church in Thessalonica that he, that he gives to them in 2 Thessalonians. And, and we, we found out that Paul in his prayers does not pray for the physical needs of the church. He prays that they would grow in grace, that they would grow in love, that they would grow in their perseverance, in their faith in God. You and I would do well as the psalmist and as Paul to focus our own, on our own spiritual needs and the spiritual needs for the others that we pray for. Now we see in this first section, in this section today, the psalmist's particular prayer, and his prayer does have three petitions that we will look at today. The first is for God's help in holiness. 
In verse 73, he says, your hands made me and formed me. Give me understanding to learn your commands. Understanding and learn are application words. It's, it's not just knowledge, but it's knowledge that we can use and live by. But notice he prays to the God whose hands formed and made him to be the one to give him that understanding. Made me and formed me are, are verbs that apply to the potter's trade. Have you ever watched a potter throw a, a cup or a vase or something on their potter's wheel? They take this formless lump of wet dirt. They call it clay, but let's, let's be honest, it's dirt. They take this formless lump of dirt, they throw it on the potter's wheel, and they, they form it into a beautiful and oftentimes practical dish, cup, vase, platter for use in a home. That's a picture that we have here as the psalmist says to God, your, your hands have made me and formed me. Give me understanding to learn your decrees. God has knit us together. God forms you and I, both in the past when He formed us in our mother's womb, and even in the present as He is making us into the child of God, the, the Christ-like child of God, as, as He tenderly at times and sometimes with pressure forms us according to His will and His good. The potter applies light touches when necessary. They apply pressure when necessary to form. And, and the master potter knows exactly what the clay can handle and how best to bring out the beauty of the pottery inside the lump of clay. The prophet Isaiah reminds us in Isaiah 64, 8, that we are the clay and God is the potter and he is forming you and I for instruments of his glory. As the psalmist prays for understanding of God's commands, he does so with the knowledge that all the events of his life are in the potter's hands and are used by the potter to form him into the godlike man that he wants to be the Christ-like man that he wants to be. We also see the psalmist's prayer for God's help in verse 80. He said, May my heart be blameless toward your decrees that I may not be put to shame. The, the psalmist is asking for God's help in walking in ways that are soaked in the law and the righteousness and the decrees of God. To be blameless is to be a person of integrity, a, a heart that is conformed and perfectly integrated to the law and to the words of God. And the psalmist prays to God for this integration, for this blamelessness, because he knows that it is only God that can bring it about in his life. Paul expands on this in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, where he says, Work out your salvation as God works in you to bring about His will and to bring about His glory according to His Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit to regenerate our hearts so that you and I can be righteous before God. And we need the Holy Spirit to transform our lives so that we will be people who are conformed to God's will and to God's Word rather than to the things of this earth. As the psalmist prays for holiness, he asks for God's help in that holiness. He asks for God's help in that walk. The second petition in this particular section 
is a petition, a cry for vindication and justice. In verse 75, he says, I know, O Lord, that your laws are righteous, and in faithfulness you have afflicted me. And he goes on in verse 78 to say, May the arrogant be put to shame for wronging me without cause. God is faithful to his promises. And God has promised in his word that the righteous will be lifted up and the wicked will be judged. The wicked will be punished. His good judgments that he talks about in verse 75, that word laws in verse 75 is is actually a word that in other places is translated judgments. The legal rulings of God is what the psalmist appeals to as he seeks vindication. On the positive side of justice, the innocent that are oppressed are lifted up. They are vindicated in their case before God. A a, a plaintiff goes before a judge or before a jury saying, I have been wronged and this wrong needs to be made right. They are vindicated when their wrong is proved and they are restored to a position um, that they were in prior to being wronged. And so the psalmist cries for vindication before his persecutors. He cries to be restored. Why? Because God has promised to restore the faithful. God has promised to show his glory and the rightness of the righteous plea before him. But the flip side of just the negative side of justice is judgment. And so in verse 78, he cries, he prays, that they would be put to shame, that they would be judged for their wrong, for their affliction. Now there's two sides, there's two parts to this cry for, for the arrogant to be put to shame. The first side is that they would be humbled in seeing the psalmist react in a way that is righteous, in a way that is holy, in a way that is still loyal to God's word and to God's law. And in their humility, repent of their arrogance, repent of the lies that they have fabricated against the psalmist and move themselves to a right relationship with God. But secondly, there is the knowledge and hope, a hope rooted in the promises of God that if they do not humble themselves, do not repent of their arrogance and wickedness, God will bring his eternal judgment on the wicked. In theological terms, we call this an imprecation or an imprecatory prayer. It is a cry, it is a prayer to God to carry out his promises to judge the wicked. But the question comes here, how do we balance an imprecatory prayer and Jesus' call in the New Testament to love our neighbors and pray for those who persecute us? I would say that it is an imprecatory prayer that allows us to enter into the work of love and prayer of our enemies. Who has promised to judge the wicked? God has promised to judge the wicked. Does he give that responsibility to you or to I? No. He says, I will judge the wicked. He says twice, once in Deuteronomy and once in Romans, do not take vengeance. I will repay, thus saith the Lord. The imprecatory prayer is a prayer rooted in God's promises. It says, Lord, I have been wronged. 
I am seeking to be righteous according to the work of your, your Son, my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In Christ, I am righteous before you. I am your child. I have been wronged, and you have promised to punish those who wrong your children. I leave that with you. Do it. Take care of it. And as I let go of that desire for justice, that desire for vengeance, as I let go of that by giving it to God because it's rooted in His promises to do that very thing, I can let go of my desire for justice and judgment and move into the life of the enemy, of the persecutor in prayer and in love. The, we shy away from imprecatory prayers and we shy away from the imprecatory psalms because they seem so mean, so vindictive. And yet they are a realization that God has promised to judge the wicked. So I can give that desire for justice and judgment to him and live a life of love and of prayer because it is through him that that justice and judgment will come. The third petition, so we've seen the petition for God's help to be holy. We have seen the petition for vindication and, judge, and judgment. And the third petition that we see in verses 76 and 77 is a cry to God for comfort because or through his steadfast love and merciful kindness. Let me read those two verses for us again. Verse 76 and 77. May your unfailing or steadfast love be my comfort according to your promise, according to your promise to your servant. Let your compassion come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. Affliction is difficult. Suffering is hard. Whether it is suffering at the hands of persecutors, whether it is suffering because we live in a world that is groaning in anxious anticipation, utterly desiring to be redeemed, and we suffer the difficulties of living in a broken and fallen world. Affliction and suffering is difficult. And we're tempted to just kind of bear up underneath it. It is what it is mentality. But, but God does not call us to an, to an it is what it is mentality. He calls us to cry out to him seeking comfort. Yes, the psalmist in the previous section and in this section affirms the faithfulness of God in affliction. But just because affliction, suffering, and struggle is something that God uses to teach us his law, to discipline us does not mean that we do not cry out to God for comfort. Because he promises that those who cry out to me will be comforted. Those who cry out to me will find relief from their affliction. Philippians 4, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, make your request known to God. Just because? No, because then the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will be yours in Christ Jesus. We don't have to sit here and figure out, okay, am I suffering because God's trying to teach me something? And if that's the, if that's the case, then I just got to sit here and bear it, bear it. No, even if that's why we're suffering is because God is trying to teach us something. We still cry to him for comfort because he is a God of unfailing love and merciful kindness. 
unfailing love in verse 76 is the, is the, is the word that's translated steadfast love in, in Psalm 136. It's that covenant love. God has promised a whole bunch of promises toward his people. And he comes to them and he says, pray to me, root your prayers in my promises because I will give you comfort according to my unfailing love. And then that word compassion, let your compassion come to me that I may live for your law is delight. God has promised compassion and can also be a merciful kindness. God has promised to be mercifully kind to people who delight in his law. And so the psalmist says, let your compassion come to me that I may live for your law is my delight. And one of the reasons the psalmist is so passionate about having God help him internalize the law of God. It's because it is within the law, within the word of God, where we see the promises of God. And those promises direct us back to God so that we can pray for him for comfort. Why do we pray for healing? Because God has promised to heal. Why do we pray for financial relief? Because God has promised to bring financial relief. Why do we pray for any of the requests that we pray? whether it's for growth and faith or, or whether it's for healing. It's because God has promised to bring those things to his people. He's not up there just kind of waiting for us to pray. Well, as long as Ike prays for another five minutes, then I'll give him the comfort. But if he cuts off at 445, he's done. No, it, it, it's a sense of dependency on our part. It's a sense of saying, Lord, as we learned in Sunday school, to she, in Sunday school this morning, Sheep look for ways every day just to get in trouble. And they need a good shepherd to keep them on the path. And our prayers are, Lord, I'm going to mess all this up. I'm going to suffer wrongly. I'm going to succeed wrongly. I'm going to find ways to just hurt myself. And I am utterly dependent upon you to keep me on the path. And that means I'm utterly dependent upon you for comfort. I'm utterly dependent upon you for peace. I'm utterly dependent upon you for the next breath that I take. And the psalmist says, Lord, I, I, I cannot find comfort unless you come to me in your unfailing love and your merciful kindness. And so he cries out to God, Lord, help me be holy. Lord, vindicate me and show your justice to the wicked. And Lord, comfort me according to your love and your kindness. And like we did in the last section, we get to see a glimpse of how God answers that prayer. In the previous section, the psalmist prayed that God would teach him knowledge and, judge, and good judgment. And, God, and the psalmist says, and you did that by afflicting me. In this section, the psalmist says, Lord, give me comfort in that faithful affliction. And God answers that with comfort through fellowship. Look at verse 74 with me for just a moment. May those who fear you rejoice when they see me, for I have put your hope, my hope, in your word. And then down to verse 79. May those who fear you turn to me, those who understand your statutes. The psalmist prays to be comforted, by fellow believers, and also to be a comfort to fellow believers. He prays to be comforted by, by fellow believers. He said, may, may, may those who fear you turn to me, those who understand your statutes. You, you know, God has gathered us together 
as a family of believers. He has put us into this place, not just to gather because we need something to do for an hour or two hours on a Sunday morning, but because He has said, I I have saved you as individuals out of sin, out of misery, and I have placed you into a family of fellow sinners that I have saved out of their sin and misery through the work of Jesus Christ. And you are here, as, as we learn throughout the New Testament, you are here to encourage one another. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 10 says, do not, do not forsake the gathering together of believers so that mutual, and I'm paraphrasing here, so that mutual encouragement can happen. The psalmist says, I need the mutual encouragement of those who gather around me. If you're anything like me, what do you have a tendency to do when suffering and affliction and difficulty comes? You turn in on yourself. You, you, you sit there like Elijah. You run the 40 days and 40 nights till you end up at Mount Horeb, which is hundreds of miles away from where you started. And you look at God and you say, God, oh, woe is me. I'm alone. And what does God say? Go to church. Gather with the fellowship of believers because your encouragement, your comfort is right there in the midst of fellow believers who suffer, who rejoice with you, who suffer with you, who are there to lead you to holiness. But on the flip side of that, the psalmist is also comforted by the fact that the fellowship of believers will be comforted by him. Now, why will they be comforted when they see him suffer? He says at the end of verse 74, for I have put my hope in your word. Have you ever watched a brother or sister in Christ that has just been crushed by difficulties in this world? Maybe it's a chronic illness. Maybe it's just horrible family problems that they stay faithful in. And yet in the midst of the crushing and the suffering, their faith and their joy grows. Have you ever witnessed something like that? It's an amazing thing if you ever get an opportunity to. That's what the psalmist is saying there. It says, I need the church, and the church needs me as well, because they need to see the faithfulness of a believer who has put his utter hope and trust in the Word of God. Christopher Ashe makes a point. He takes several pages to do it, and and I'm just going to summarize it into into a sentence here. Several paragraphs, not pages, excuse me. But he says, in essence, he says, it is better to stay in affliction and grow in faith and grace than to have circumstances fixed and your heart never change. And I'm not some, uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying here that we need to wallow in our misery. As we seek out community, we don't seek out commiseration. We don't seek out people that will help sit there with you. And as you say, oh, woe is me, they so yeah, they go, yeah, oh, woe is you. What we need is people who will help us to be faithful in the midst of affliction. I remember one time I was going through a difficulty and I, and I went to a friend. And if I'm honest, I went to the friend for commiseration. You know, misery loves company. I was miserable. I wanted him to be miserable too so that he could, we could just be miserable together. But he was appropriately miserable with me. 
And after a time, when it was appropriate, in his comforting words, he looked at me and said, okay, we need to address the situation. What have you done that you need to repent of in the middle of this? Now, as I said, it was very appropriate. It wasn't the first thing he said to me. We, we, walked, with, we walked together through this for a period of time before he came to me and said, look, you know, as I look at this, you've contributed to the problem. You need to repent of your contribution. But he and I both grew in that because he saw me faithful in the difficulty and I had the comfort that he spoke into our life, into my life. We, we cry out for God, to God, for comfort many times, and yet ignore the comfort that he gives in his church. We don't seek suffering. We, we don't seek those things out, but when they come and we pray to God for comfort, we enter into his church we enter into his people and find the comfort that the church gives to us and the comfort that you and I can give to the church. The prophet Elijah had seen a lot of things, a lot of powerful things from God. He had seen God stop and start the rain. He had seen God rain fire from heaven that melted rocks. He had, he had even seen God use birds to bring him food in his flight from Jezebel. And as he arrived at Sinai to be asked by God, what are you doing here? He answered God, I am scared and all alone in my suffering. And yet God came to him in the midst of that almost whining, but in the midst of that grief. And he says this in 1 Kings 19, 18, he said, yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and all whose mouths have not kissed him. When we suffer the affliction of persecution, when we suffer the, the, the affliction of sickness, when we suffer in this world, you and I are tempted to think we are all alone in the middle of it. But God says, no, you are not alone. I have placed you in a church that is meant to bring you closer to holiness and to bring you comfort in the midst of suffering. You and I need to find ways to develop what Christopher Ashe goes on to call an appropriate honesty with our brothers and sisters. You know, prayer request time may not be the time to stand up and say, hey, look, I am struggling with a particular sin. I am struggling with a particular affliction, and I feel worn out at the end of my rope. But at the same time, it may be the appropriate place to say that. But if it's not, we need to develop relationships within this body right here to where we can go to somebody and say, I'm suffering and I'm tempted to think I'm all alone with this. Will you walk with me in comfort and holiness and be God's hand of comfort in my life? And then those of us who aren't suffering need to be willing to be that person, to offer tears when they are appropriate, but also to call to holiness when it is appropriate as well. We need to pray for and develop a sense within this body that we are not alone, that we are here for each other and that we are God's hands of comfort in the lives of our brothers and sisters who suffer 
The psalmist's prayer and our cry is that we find our comfort and holiness in this church. Let us pray. Our God and Father above, we do thank you for these words from the psalmist, words that remind us of your promises and words that remind us that you answer prayer. Open up relationships within this church where we feel comfortable with each other, suffering together and offering comfort and calls to holiness together. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you go this week, take this blessing upon you. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.